The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with buyers back in charge. Stocks looking to extend yesterday's strong gains as tech does something for the first time since 2020. And no sign of slowing down. Layoffs from media to fintech gaining steam as companies look to slim down some bloated payrolls. And after two days of testimony reports this morning, the White House is set to unveil new rules for medium-sized banks as it looks to fend off another possible banking crisis. Plus, the backlash against AI gaining some momentum Why tech pioneers like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak are calling for a pause to its development. Then later, Sam Bankman-Fried expected back in a New York court today in light of new bribery charges. It is Thursday, March the 30th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, good Thursday morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Let's start off with a check on the markets right now. Looking at U.S. stock futures solidly in the green this morning. Right now, very early, of course, the Dow would open up about 140 points higher. We're seeing the S&P and the NASDAQ both about a quarter of a percent or more higher this morning. Now, this follows a strong session for stocks yesterday, with the Dow gaining more than 300 points or just above 1%. For the week, the Dow and the S&P are on pace for their best gains since the first week of this month. But the real story, tech's outperformance, with the Nasdaq coming off its highest close since all the way back in August and on pace for its best quarter since the second quarter of 2020, when it gained almost 30%. You see right here, the strong moves when it comes to the NASDAQ 100. We're also checking the bond market. Yields right now, always in focus, looking at the 10-year benchmark at 3.57, the two-year note at 4.09. We're also watching energy as we continue to do, especially when it comes to WTI. You can see it remains above $70 a barrel, right now up a percent. Brent crude, the international benchmark, just about 79 a barrel, also up just about 1%. Again, natural gas continues its slide, down two and a quarter percent this morning. Okay, now for a check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade over in Europe, our Arabile Goumide. He's standing by in our London newsroom with much more. Arabile, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Certainly a positive tilt out in Asia then as well. And this has followed right through into Europe's market as well, which has certainly seen banking sector tensions ease off quite substantially. We're seeing markets across Europe really move into some positive territory. It does follow on from a few days uh, of this sense then of positivity across the board. Perhaps a slight underperformance out in Switzerland as well as in the UK. When one takes a look at the sectors, one will keenly note that the banking sector certainly up around uh, 1.5% as well earlier on this morning but towards this trading day now 3.2% higher as the retail stocks and very keenly watched because H&M came out with their first quarter uh, numbers and surprising with a profit out on that front so that has been fairly interesting uh, for investors then as well in terms of the financials on the other end of the scale there 8 tenths of a percent better off banks as I said nearly 2% to the good it does follow on from UBS having gained more than 2.5% as well today that follows on from yesterday's decision uh, by UBS to then hire uh, Amorti again 
as its new CEO. So a return back to what they've known for some time then and really trying to get back some sense of stability in that banking sector. Let's quickly turn our attention to some European yields then. There was a sense of steadiness then uh, in this market uh, yesterday uh, following on then from what is a slight easing of banking tensions as I had noted. But today, as you can tell, a slight uh, uh, rather coming off their highs a little bit there, as you can tell, uh, when it comes to these bond yields then as well, the yields there for the 10-year in the UK at 3.48, uh, 2.82 as well then for the French 10-year too. So the market, generally a positive tilt, but an easing somewhat coming through from uh, that uh, uneasiness that markets have certainly felt from the banking stocks. On the data front, certainly looking out to, that U- to those U.S. numbers that are set to come out later today. Our Irabile, thank you very much. Irabile Gumade, live in our London newsroom. All right, time for a news alert right now. The Biden administration announcing a new round of public and private sector investments as part of its EV acceleration challenge. That includes Amazon hitting 3,000 electric delivery vehicles to date with a target of 100,000 by 2030. The White House also says Google will commit resources to provide up-to-date information about EV tax credits and eligible vehicles in a new search tool. And Wells Fargo says it's launching a new tool to support businesses transitioning to EV fleets to help calculate the cost of electrification, tax credits, and cost savings. Right now, getting a check on shares of EV makers in the pre-market, we're seeing Tesla up a half a percent, Rivian almost up a half a percent, Lucid, however, down a half a percent. All right, let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Frank, good morning to you. The FDIC is reportedly facing an almost $23 billion bill related to the recent bank failures. According to Bloomberg, the agency is weighing a one-time assessment on the industry this May to shore up its deposit insurance fund with a, quote, larger-than-usual emphasis on the nation's biggest banks. As part of its massive cost-cutting program, which includes the elimination of 7,000 jobs, Disney is reportedly axing more than 300 streaming employees in China tasked with personalization and regional search. And not just Disney. Online lending platform LendingTree says it's cutting around 13 percent of its workforce to help lower cost. And video game maker Electronic Arts is slashing 6 percent of its workers as part of a restructuring plan to prioritize what it calls growth opportunities in gaming. And Alibaba Management giving investors an update on its restructuring plans. In a conference call last night, the company says it is willing to cede control of some of its main businesses, including retail and cloud. No details yet on a timeline for any IPOs. However, with CEO Daniel Zhang saying his team will continue monitoring market conditions, Frank. All right, Savannah Hanau, we're going to see you later on the show. Certainly got to watch that moves for Alibaba this morning. All right, turn our attention back to Wall Street. Despite the recent rally, concern over the health of the banking sector and the broader economy, they continue to weigh. We're looking at a new note from Barclays suggesting the first wave of deposit outflows related to bank solvency fears may be nearly over, but that a second wave is likely coming. Barclays noting the recent confusion around deposit safety may have awakened what they call sleepy depositors to the existence of higher interest rates available to them and money market funds as total net inflows to those funds continue to increase to record highs. Let's talk more about this with Michael Reynolds, Glenn Mead, vice president. Michael, good morning. Thanks for being here. 
Thanks for having me, Frank. All right, I want to talk about those sleepy depositors that Barclays is referencing in just a moment. But first, I want to go to some of your research. So Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, they had combined assets of $320 billion. The 25 banks that failed back in 2008, they had combined assets of $375 billion. What does that tell us about the scope of the current banking crisis? Yeah, so what this tells us here is that this current banking crisis, at the same time, both large and narrow, large in the sense that a large amount of assets have failed here uh, relative to 2008. We're not quite at that peak yet, but we're very close. Um, but it was 25 banks that failed back in 2008. And we're talking about two now. So it has been relatively contained relative to that greater period of crisis we saw back in 08, 09, uh, which highlights that this is both you know, a, a large issue, but it's contained for now. We're watching for signs of spread and financial contagion. We're really not seeing anything that's materially close to the great financial crisis. When we look at swap spreads, when we look at high yield spreads as well, they, they appear okay. relatively contained relative to that period. So we're on the lookout. All right, I want to circle back to that Barclays note, their comments about sleepy depositors. Right now, we're looking at the KRE Regional Bank ETF down 27 percent this month. The KBE, that includes the big banks, down 22 percent. How big of a risk are these sleepy depositors moving their money out of banks, possibly in the money market funds? What does it mean for the banks? What does it mean for the broader economy? Sure. So shifting deposits are an issue here. And whenever you have a fractional banking system, that's the cornerstone of capital for banks. We've been watching very closely some of the Federal Reserve data that they report intramonth on deposit flows between large and small banks. We have seen incremental moves over the last few weeks from those small banks to the larger banks and perhaps even some signs that some of that money is even going to money market funds, as that report would suggest. What's different than middle of March is that this time around, uh, the Fed is really attentive to the risks, and they're not going to let this sort of get out of control. They've put out a number of uh, uh, d- deposit. The, the deposit facility has been taking a lot of deposits as well uh, from the Fed, and their new bank term funding facility as okay. well uh, should help stem the flow as well. All right. So you're also looking at the possibility of recession. You believe that we're getting closer and closer to a hard landing. What are the signs that you're looking at that lead you to that conclusion? We have our finger on the pulse of a lot of leading economic indicators from the PMIs, from consumer sentiment. Uh, The yield curve is giving us an indication historically that would be consistent with economic recession in the U.S. at this point in time. Um, This banking crisis is perhaps just the catalyst that gets us there. It's always happened that whenever the Fed raises rates uh, to particularly high levels in such a quick time, they've raised rates 5% over the last year. That has led to recession historically in the U.S. We think this time is no different, but markets don't seem to be pricing as if that's the base case. And we think that's a bit of a mispricing at this point in time. All right, Michael Reynolds of Glenmead, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. All right, we come back here on Worldwide Exchange to check on the state of freight with the CEO of GXO Logistics. Plus, disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried expected back in court today on international bribery charges. And then later, your morning mystery chart on why my next guest says this stock is his top tech pick for the next six months. And guess what? It's already up 70% this year. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time for our weekly check on the state of freight. The Dow Transport's underperforming the broader market since the collapse of SVB and the banking crisis. Analysts say the expectation of tightening loan and credit conditions is weighing on the sector because customers for trucking, rail and warehousing companies will likely be impacted. We're also watching trucking rates facing some very tough comps from last year when rates hit record highs with the market searching for a bottom as demand continues to soften. Let's talk more about the current state of the supply chain as well with Malcolm Wilson, the CEO of GXO Logistics, a provider for companies including Apple, Verizon and Nike. Malcolm, always great to see you. Hey, thanks, Frank. All right. So we just kind of touched on some of your blue chip customers. You provide warehousing logistics for a lot of S&P 500 companies. As we've seen, rates hit their highest level since the great financial crisis. What are your customers telling you about the impact that these higher rates are having on their business? Right now. Right, right now, what we're seeing is customers are being thoughtful about this softer macro environment, these higher interest rates. But we're also seeing no end of big, strategic, transformational projects, projects that are going to hit in later years, 24, 25, 26 and beyond. And also, we're helping our customers with tactical projects, helping them lower down costs, manage this environment, and that, in the end, is good for them, good for the consumer. All right, so yesterday you announced an expansion of your GXO Direct product. That's basically a warehousing solution. It allows companies, especially retail companies, to move their product closer to consumers. What are you hearing about warehousing demand? We're hearing a lot of retail companies say they're trying to work down their inventory, in other cases trying to right-size it and get the products that people want instead of things that were in vogue last year. What are you hearing when it comes to inventory levels? Yeah, across all of our business, inventory levels, they've moderated. All those supply chain difficulties that we've experienced over the past two years, they've dissipated away. Goods are now evenly flowing from manufacturing into our warehouses and, of course, out to the consumer. But, you know, a lot of customers, they've taken heed of these difficulties over the past two years. And, in fact, the more nearshoring product, bringing goods and services closer to the consumer. All right, so you're hitting on nearshoring. You're, I'm going to call them your sister company, RxO, actually announced a new project uh, where they're opening up space right on the border of Texas and Laredo to kind of help out companies that are trying to do this nearshoring and also just the general U.S.-Mexico trade. What are you hearing from your customers? Let's specifically talk about your blue chip customers. We just mentioned them a moment ago, Nike, Apple, Verizon, et cetera, um, about their efforts to supply closer to the United States, specifically in Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of added value services are being moved closer to the consumer. We're seeing that across a whole range of our customers, not just here in North America. We're seeing it in Europe. Textile products being moved into Turkey, where we can do overland transport into the consumer, big markets in Western Europe and the UK. All right, so you're touching on what's going on in Europe right now. I want to ask you, we're seeing a softening of the freight markets, the warehousing markets here in the United States. Are we seeing something similar over in Europe, or are they, their freight markets recovering a bit faster than ours? 
Freight markets are okay in Europe, recovering. But, you know, consumer demand, that's the acid test. In the UK, it's the most moderated of the markets that we're operating in. Consumers are still wrestling with high levels of wage inflation, energy inflation. But across the rest of our European business, big markets, France, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, in fact, they're performing pretty well. All right, GXO Logistics up over 1.5% in the pre-market. Malcolm Wilson, CEO of GXO, thank you so much for being here. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, growing AI backlash, the rise of the dumb phone, and Alexa gets into the sandwich game. Your top trending stories are coming up when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Disgraced FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried expected back in a New York courtroom later today where he faces new criminal charges. CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Segalos is here with me now. Mac, what are we looking at today when this hearing kicks off at 11 a.m. Eastern? Well, what we're looking for are some fresh answers from Sam Bankman-Fried. The attorney's office for the Southern District of New York unveiled its third round of criminal charges against him, this time with a focus on potentially bribing a foreign government. Now, this brings a total tally up to 13 counts against him. And today is really about Sam entering a plea of guilty or not guilty to the five new charges that were added onto the list since the last time that he was arraigned. So let's unopen some of those. So on Tuesday, they unsealed a charge that essentially said that Sam directed his team to pay a bribe of $40 million to one or more Chinese officials in order to unfreeze trading accounts linked to his crypto hedge fund, Alameda Research. Now, apparently those accounts collectively held $1 billion. And what's especially suspect here is the fact that these payments were broken up into two and that second payment only came once the accounts were unfrozen. Now, some of the other charges that he'll be entering a plea for today relate to potentially unlawful donations made to political leaders here in the U.S., money laundering. There's also a question as to whether or not he operated an unlicensed money-transmitting business. And if convicted, these new counts alone could tack several dozen uh, years onto a potential prison sentence, Frank. All right, so this is really a story that just continues to have twists and turns, Mac. Um, SBF allegedly spending $40 million to unlock $1 billion that he used on bad trading bets at Alameda. I mean, this, this story is all over the place. You've done so much great reporting on SBF. Um, I know you've spoken to him in the past. Why would he even do this? I mean, it just is another example of his, you know, unbridled uh, appetite for risk. And if you look at the timing here, we're talking about early 2021. This is right as the most recent bull run was getting started in crypto and having a billion dollars stranded in China. Not really ideal when markets are picking up momentum and you want to have some skin in the game. And I, it really, when you think about it, you know, some experts are saying this was actually quite a brilliant move by prosecutors because it, because it helps them create this narrative for the jury. Because when this trial gets underway in October, it's all about, you know, painting a picture of a boy who would stop at nothing to get what he wanted, bribing Chinese officials, paying off U.S. politicians, defrauding investors out of billions upon billions of dollars. And even though Sam has vehemently denied the fact that he is so far, he's entered a plea of not guilty to the charges uh, that he's been arraigned for. 
score as of today. But it's going to be difficult for a jury to ignore the fact that his ex-girlfriend who ran Alameda Research and his ex-best friend who he co-founded FTX with are both cooperating with the prosecution to build this case against him. Quite the story. Great reporting as always, Matt. Great to have you here on set. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Philip. Hey, Frank, good morning. Breaking news this morning, a Russian news agency reports that American Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has been detained in Russia in the city of Yekaterinburg. Russia's Federal Security Service tells Interfax that he was detained on espionage charges but provided no evidence. The journal did not immediately respond to a request for comment. We're following more breaking news. Two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters crashed on Wednesday night in Trigg County, Kentucky, near Fort Campbell. The status of the crew members is unknown at this time, but the 101st Airborne Division tweeted that there were several casualties. Officials say the incident happened during a routine training mission. An investigation is underway, and a press conference is scheduled for later this morning. Pope Francis has been admitted to a hospital in Rome after complaining of breathing difficulties. Tests show that he's suffering from a respiratory infection, although COVID-19 has been ruled out. The Vatican says that the 86-year-old pontiff will remain in the hospital for at least a few days. Finally, 145 days after the Astros won the World Series, it's time to play ball once again. All 30 Major League Baseball teams are in action today for opening day. The Astros celebrate their franchise's second championship before playing the White Sox. First pitch of the 2023 season is just after 1 p.m. Eastern with the Braves playing the Nationals and the San Francisco Giants taking on the Yankees in New York. Frank, back to you. You know, Philip, I, I like how you're using the Astros winning the World Series as like your mark right there. You know, I'm a Phillies fan. I feel like that was a bit of a jab. Philip Mena, great to see you. Right, what can I say? <laughs> it was. <laughs> Good to see you as always. You too. All right, straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, checking in on Tech's 2023 hour performance and whatever happened to value over growth. Our analyst panel here to weigh in. Plus, after two days of hearings on Capitol Hill, what the White House is reportedly preparing to do to prevent the next banking crisis. And throughout the month of March, we're celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. As we had to break, here's Siebert William Shank, President and CEO, Suzanne Shank. Finance used to be the ultimate boys club, but my career trajectory to CEO of a successful investment banking firm proves how far women can go when past leaders paved the way. One icon who has blazed trails for all women on Wall Street is Muriel Siebert, the first woman to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange and someone who played a huge role in women's empowerment in finance. I was fortunate to have her as a business partner and mentor for many years. As a Jewish woman on the Stock Exchange and an African-American woman on Wall Street, we shared a kinship in our understanding of what it's like to fight to the top and of the need to change the stakes for those who came after us. It is right around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, 10.30 in London, and we're just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Stocks looking to keep the momentum moving with the S&P once again above the 4,000 mark and the Nasdaq 100 at its highest level in more than six months. The Biden administration reportedly looking to get tougher on mid-sized banks following the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Details on the fresh steps the White House may take in just a moment. 
and sounding the alarm over artificial intelligence. Elon Musk joining a chorus of tech leaders calling for a pause in AI advancements. It is Thursday, March the 30th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back. I'm Frank Holland. Thank you for joining Worldwide Exchange. Let's pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. We are seeing green across the board right now. Again, very early, the Dow Jones would open up more than 100 points higher. The S&P and the Nasdaq more than a quarter percent higher in the pre-market. This follows a strong session for stocks yesterday, adding a positive performance for the week. The Dow and the S&P are looking at their best gains since the first week of this month. But tech, that continues to be the real shining star. The Nasdaq 100 coming off its highest close since August and on pace for its best quarter since the second quarter of 2020 when it gained almost 30 percent. You're seeing right now it's up 17 percent year to date. You're still continuing to see an upside move even after the disruption of SVB and Signature Bank. Something that we continue to watch. We're also getting a check on the bond market right now. We're looking at the yield on the benchmark 10-year at 3.56. This is about 50 basis points lower than we started the month. Uh, The two-year, about 1% lower when it comes to yield from where we started the month. Still above 4% right now. We also want to hit oil. WTI remaining above 70 bucks a barrel. uh, Getting fueled by that China reopening. Right now we're seeing it's up more than three-quarters of a percent. Brent crude, the international benchmark, almost at 79 bucks a barrel, up over a half a percent. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Frank, good morning. The Biden administration is reportedly preparing a new wave of rules in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. According to reports, the administration could announce the tougher rules for mid-sized banks with 100 to $250 billion in assets as early as this week. The White House is expected to task the Federal Reserve and other agencies with creating the new regulations. Before this possible push, the Fed has been rethinking a number of its rules related to mid-sized lenders, though many experts on this network say the rules being considered would not have staved off this latest crisis. Disney's cost-cutting measures reaching top levels of the company. Marvel Entertainment chairman Ike Perlmutter has been laid off by the media giant as his division, which is separate from Marvel Studios, is absorbed into other units of Disney. Perlmutter had supported activist investor Nelson Peltz's unsuccessful bid this year to obtain a seat on Disney's board. And the Air Force is reportedly no longer pursuing a hypersonic weapons program under development by Lockheed Martin. According to Bloomberg, the decision to no longer advance the air-launched rapid response weapon comes after an unsuccessful test of the system this month. The report adds that military officials are instead favoring a program by rival Raytheon Technologies, Frank. And I know our Morgan Brennan is going to keep a close eye on that. Yeah, absolutely. Savannah, thank you very much. All right, turning our attention back to Wall Street's recent run-up, and specifically the communication services sector. It's been an outperformer so far this year, but there are signs of even more opportunity in this sector. Our Dom Chu joins us with more for this month's Sectornomics. Good morning, Dom. If you've got a value tilt, Frank, good morning to you. So communication services is one of the main reasons why you're seeing that outperformance in the broader market cap-weighted indices and the tech-heavier NASDAQ and NASDAQ 100. If you look at the overall sector compared to the S&P 500, the white line is the communication services ETF, and the orange line is the S&P 500. You can see a huge difference, around 12 to 13 percent just so far this year. Now, communication services is only the sixth biggest sector, but it's got a lot of the key names out there. Of course, we're talking about Alphabet, 
uh, some of the other ones, big ones out there, meta platforms. But take a look at this. If you look at analyst estimates for where we think upside could be, there are some very beaten up names in the sector that have potentially a lot of upside potential if analyst target price somehow come to fruition. Dish Network is currently 61% below its average analyst target price. Match Group down 37% below its. News Corp, 33%. Warner, which is now, I guess, Warner Brothers Discovery. Discovery Warner Brothers here is now down about 32%. And Live Nation down about 30% as well. All of those could be bigger value plays. But take a deep dive on what's happening right now with Dish Network. That stock... One of the real only pure plays left in satellite television for many investors out there. That's been seeing a lot of downside momentum, specifically just over the course of the last couple of months here. Still down about 42 percent over the last kind of since the at least over the period from the financial crisis to what we're seeing right now. So, Frank, Dish Network, one of those ones in focus, a lot of upside if those analyst targets come to fruition. But let's say only 47 percent of analysts tracked by facts that say it's a hold. Only a few, 30-some percent say it's a buy. Frank, back over to you. Yeah, Dom, really interesting, especially when it comes to Dish Network. After they lost the NFL Sunday ticket, really curious about how that's going to impact demand. It's good. Well, it's, remember, Dish Network didn't have the Sunday ticket. It was, that was DirecTV that had oh, the Sunday ticket. Okay. Dish Network is a separate one, smaller, but, but, but AT&T has DirecTV, so it's a division there. So it's hard to get that pure play, Frank. But still, Dish Network, a lot of those satellite dynamics still in play here as well. Cable communications in general has been a tough place to be, so we'll see whether that kind of overall media sector can get a turnaround, Frank. Dom, mix up on my part, but you got it all right there. Thank you very much for this month's Sectornomics. All right, let's take a deeper dive in the communication services sector and broader tech and Internet sectors. Join me now is Mark Schmulik, lead Internet analyst at Bernstein. Mark, great to have you here. Great to be here. All right, so Dom was just kind of hitting on some of the possible, you know, discounts and opportunities when it comes to communication services. What do you think about the sector overall? Yeah, I don't think you need to reach, uh, you know, kind of into the bin uh, to go try to find value and, and kind of uh, deals and attractive valuations. I think you've got it right there in uh, large cap Internet. Uh, you know, Google, Meta, both trading at below market multiples, uh, both great stocks to own here from uh, from my seat. All right. So you're hitting on Meta uh, right now. You have a, a price target for Meta right now of 225. That's about a nine percent upside from where we are right now. This stock's already run up 70 percent this year. So give us a sense of how much of your thesis for this stock to have more room to run is based on the idea or the possibility, at least the specter of a TikTok ban. Yeah, you know, certainly a TikTok ban would help all of these stocks. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, you know, but even in the absence of any kind of ban, you know, the story around Meta, I think so far, or at least post uh, the third quarter earnings call, uh, has been, you know, about kind of finding religion on, on costs and efficiencies. And, and they've certainly done that uh, and done it in a faster way than I think we've ever seen any company of that size move in the past. Now, you know, I, I think that leg of the story, you know, of, of kind of cost reduction and efficiencies is mostly done. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not a good stock to own here as we, we kind of take a look at the next six months in particular. Uh, and, and now it becomes back to a revenue growth story. And where does growth come from? Uh, we're pretty optimistic on Meta taking share in the digital ad market, particularly as it pertains to you know, some of their closest peers. Uh, and I think as some of those improvements on uh, the, you know, the ad stack that we've seen winning back share that they lost post Apple's you know, changes that we saw about a year and a half ago, uh, I think is going to propel the stock forward. It's very interesting you're focusing on the digital ad market. We've heard of a kind of a big slowdown as we've seen fears of a broader economic slowdown. 
What's giving you confidence that not only Meta can gain more market share in the digital ad market and also that Alphabet or Google can do it? Um, what do you see as the, the catalyst for more ad spending? Yeah, you know, we, we know it's a softer digital ad market. There's certainly no question about that. I, I think what we're seeing kind of below the headline numbers is that Meta is winning back some of the share that they originally lost. Uh, engagement certainly looks strong. And, uh, you know, their workarounds to IDFA, be it kind of the conversion API, where their newer product advantage is, is seeing great traction with advertisers. You know, we, we take a view that as the digital ad market will start to recover as we go throughout the year, primarily as like the cost of capital really starts to stabilize and other companies also reprioritize growth, you know, there, there's very few ways to actually go buy that growth. And what you're going to see, you know, as many of those other companies return to growth prospects, uh, they'll be deploying dollars on the platforms that give them the most scale, which means it's not going to be evenly distributed across the ad players. It's going to be heavily concentrated on the key incumbents, you know, which for us is, is Meta, Google, and to some extent Amazon. Okay, I also want to switch gears. Right now you have a hold on Apple, price target of 125 Why just a hold for this company? Oh, that's not me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I apologize. Sorry about that. That's a mix-up. Um, any other picks in the space then? No. Uh, for me, it's keeping it simple. Stick with the names that we, we know we trust. They know how to produce both top-line growth you know, and earnings power. Um, you know, so we, we like the names that are trading at a discount that we think that there's, you know, real value ahead as we go through, you know, what we hope is a recovery in the digital ad space. All right, Mark, Mark Schmulik of Bernstein, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate the insight. Thank you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a new tax setting the wealthy citizens of one U.S. city scrambling to unload their mansions. Our Robert Frank is here to lay out the high-priced incentives they're rolling out to lure in buyers. But first, as we had to break, some of your top trending stories. Amazon making it one step easier to order takeout. Alexa partnering with Panera Bread to launch its updated food interface. Starting this week, my Panera members will be able to use Alexa on Echo devices to search through hundreds of menu items, as well as place and track their orders. Younger Americans looking to dumb down their smartphones and limit screen time. New research showing millions of sales of mobile devices used in the early 2000s like Nokia's with flip phone sales up last year. And Elon Musk co-founder Steve Wozniak and Pinterest Evan Sharp among tech leaders calling for a six-month pause and developing competing systems to chat GPT due to the potential risk to society. In a letter from the Future of Life Institute, which is primarily funded by the Musk Foundation, the group says powerful AI systems should only be created once experts are confident the risk will be manageable. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The race is on by wealthy residents in Los Angeles to unload their high-priced homes before a new tax takes effect. And some are pulling out all the stops to try to get deals done, from offering discounts to even luxury cars in some instances. Robert Frank joins us now with more. So, Robert, I don't know a lot about food and wine pairings, but a luxury car generally pairs pretty well with an L.A. mansion. They do, Frank. And this uh, is all in response to a tax that was passed by Los Angeles voters back in November, but it actually takes effect starting Saturday. It's a 4% transfer tax on the sale of properties over $5 million and 5.5% of properties sold over $10 million. That's on top of the existing transfer tax. So if you sold your home, very nice home, for $20 million, you owe a new tax of $1.2 million starting on April 1st. The seller of this home in Beverly Hills, listed by Dream Living LA, is offering a new Aston Martin, McLaren, or Bentley 
if the buyer pays the full asking price of $16.5 million, and by the way, they have to close before Saturday. Brokers Josh Altman and Jade Mills, they're big luxury brokers out there, they're offering a million-dollar bonus to any agent who can bring them a buyer for this $28 million home in Bel Air and close by Saturday. Brokers are saying the tax will put added pressure on an already falling market. Sales volume for luxury homes in L.A. fell 51% in the fourth quarter with prices down about 5%. But the biggest impact and one that's perhaps most overlooked here, Frank, would be on commercial property transactions, which according to one estimate would contribute the largest share of the tax. That's because This tax not only applies to mansions, but actually all office, retail, industrial buildings, as well as uh, multifamily buildings. Now, anti-tax groups have sued to block the tax. Brokers are already figuring out ways they might get around it in the future, like perhaps breaking a sale into two separate property deals. It's expected to raise between $600 million and $1 billion a year to help build affordable housing and help the homeless problem in L.A. But, Frank, a lot of sellers, including Mark Wahlberg, who sold his property for $55 million back in February, really trying to get out ahead of this tax and sell before it takes effect. Yeah, I would imagine if you have a mansion, uh, you'd want to get that sale done before April 1st to avoid that tax. So I've heard about buying down points, never heard about getting an Aston Martin. That's something a bit different. I want to ask you about the multifamily impact, though. Um, if this, uh, the whole idea here is to reduce the homeless problem and, and create more housing availability. Any sense of how adding that tax to multifamily properties will impact not only the availability of housing, but also rents? Well, there's a carve out in the tax that exempts low income housing and affordable subsidized housing. So theoretically, that that will resolve that possible conflict. But you're right in that, you know, unless it's labeled or programmed as affordable housing, it's good. And and again, this this affects any building with five million or more, 10 million or more. So it's it's fairly high end. But, you know, the, the opponents of this are arguing that it will have a negative impact on affordable housing, but also that it just won't raise as much as expected because you'll basically steal demand from the future. There will be a lot of deals done in March and February that will then lead to lower sales and lower tax revenues going forward. All right, Robert Frank, great reporting as always, man. The Frank and Frank series continues. Great to see you. You got it. Uh, we're following some breaking news now. One of China's big four banks warning it needs to manage the fallout over the ongoing global banking turmoil. China Construction Bank's president saying just a short time ago the firm needs to supervise credit, liquidity and market risk in light of the recent challenges in the U.S. and the E.U. The bank is set to report its earnings tomorrow. You see shares are down about a half a percent in the pre-market. All right. Coming up ahead, Gilman Hill Assets Management's Jenny Harrington. She lays out why she continues to keep her expectations a bit tempered for the markets as we gear up to wrap up the first quarter. And if you haven't already, follow the pod. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, as we like to call it, WEX. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Quick check on U.S. stock futures as we hover near session highs. At this time, it looks like the Dow would open up about 140 points higher if it opened. Uh, seeing the S&P and the Nasdaq both up about a third of a percent. 
All right. Time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour. We begin with the Biden administration announcing a new round of public and private sector investments as part of its EV acceleration challenge, including new programs for Amazon, Google, and Wells Fargo. Sam Bankman free will be arraigned in federal court today on new charges accusing him of paying a $40 million bribe to Chinese officials to unfreeze his hedge fund's accounts. Bankman Freed is expected to plead not guilty. Disney reportedly cutting more than 300 jobs in China as part of its multi-billion dollar cost-cutting plan with the layoffs affecting employees working in personalization and search. Also reducing headcount, Electronic Arts cutting about 800 jobs or 6% of its workforce. The FDIC is facing nearly $23 billion in costs from recent bank failures and is now considering a one-time special assessment this May on some of the nation's biggest banks to make up for that shortfall. And Alibaba considering gradually giving up control of some of its main businesses after completing a major overhaul to split its $250 billion empire into six new companies that may debut on public markets. All right, gearing up for the trading day ahead on the economic front, we're awaiting initial jobless claims in real GDP. We've also got a slew of central bank speakers on tap. That includes Boston Fed President Susan Collins, Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin, and Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. All right, turning back to the markets with just two trading days left before the first quarter is in the books. A bit of a mixed picture so far. The Dow down in the red, down more than 1%. The S&P up nearly 5%. And tech coming back in a big way so far this year, with the NASDAQ up nearly 14%. Amid that performance so far, our next guest says she's holding firm on her view that the markets in 2023, they're going to largely be range brown. Jenny Harrington, she's the CEO and Portfolio Management at Gilman Hill Asset Management and, of course, a CNBC contributor. Jenny, always great to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks, Frank. All right, so you think the market's going to kind of be range-bound. Give us a, a little bit more direction when you say range-bound. Right now, we're seeing the markets above 4,000. Yeah. They've held pretty steady above 4,000. At one point this year, they were down to about 3,860. Are we going to dip back to that 3,860 or stay closer to this 4,000 range? I think maybe dip down to 3860. So I've actually been on this whole range bound bandwagon since pretty much since last June. So since last June, I thought, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on, a lot of information that needs to be consolidated. And that simply takes time to get through it. So we've, we've moved. And it's interesting, actually, if you look at that range bound since June to now, you see you see the range consolidating, which actually makes me feel pretty good. And you all know I'm no technician. Um, but I think what it really says from a fundamental perspective is that we have digested a ton of information. And it's interesting because I was having an argument slash debate with my partner, Greg, the other day. And he said, look, I can make a really bullish case for the market and went through with all the things that could go right, which is earnings start to improve. Um, China continues to reopen. We know where interest rates are going. We know that they're probably not going up too much more from here. And went through this whole list. And I said to him, okay, but what does that get you to? $240 earnings? Even if you stretch and put an 18 times multiple on $240 <laughs> earnings for next year, you're still at only about $41.50, which is only about 7% upside. So I think the upside is really capped. And there's still a lot of difficult stuff to get through. I think earnings aren't going to be just glossy and rosy from here. I think they're going to be bumpy. And so that's why I'm really committed to this concept of range-bound continuing. Okay. I think it's just, it just continues to be a battle of forces of good and evil. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to bounce something off you. I know you're a big dividend investor. I want to show you something right now. We're looking at the mm -hmm. SDOG ETF. This is an ETF that follows the dogs of the Dow strategy over a couple of different sectors. It's actually up this week pretty big, outperforming. Mm -hmm. 
What do you make of seeing this outperforming in a dividend-focused ETF when so many investors are turning to the bond market for yield and sometimes higher yield than you can even get from, an, from a dividend? Right. So, um, so I think it's interesting because if you look at that S-Dog or if you look at DVY or any of the dividend indexes, they actually did really, really well um, in 2021 and 2022. They held up far better than the broader markets. And then they continued to hold up perfectly fine this year until SVB. And then what you saw was they all tanked, right? And they were down 10% kind of in three weeks. Um, As a dividend investor, I got the same spanking that they did. So that stung. And it's interesting because I think you can claim that it has to do with rates, but it really doesn't. Because what you saw was as rates were increasing in 2022, into the beginning of this year, they actually continue to hold up. So the real reason that they were down so severely is because by and large, dividend stocks are frequently energy stocks, regional banking stocks, companies with a lot of leverage, smaller capital stocks, and all of those are got what got really pummeled in that knee-jerk, you know, fear response following the banking collapses starting in the beginning of, well, starting March 10th. Um, and so what happened now, and the reason we're seeing a recovery, is just that those positions were wildly, wildly oversold. I don't mean the ETFs, I mean the actual stocks that underlie the ETFs were wildly oversold due to nothing wrong with the individual companies, just okay. this response in the market to sell off. Yeah, so I think, it, I think it's oversold now being bought back. I don't think it has to do with interest rates. All right, Jen, we want to bounce a couple of things off you right now. We have some upgrades and downgrades this morning. We're going to start off with Evercore upgrading Walmart, boosting its rating to outperform from inline, also raising its price target to 160 bucks from uh, 145 It cites management's diligent work to pivot Walmart to an omni-channel operation and investment of non-core assets. What's your take on this upgrade of Walmart? So we've looked at Walmart many, many times over the years for our discipline growth strategy and continue to hold off over and over because it's really expensive. We think that the low-end consumer, may, like if, you know, if there is a broader economic recession, who's going to get hurt the most? It will be the lower-end consumer. That's where they benefit the most. That's you know their main consumer. So we continue to hold off. I haven't read that report yet. Maybe there's something nuanced in there, but every time we've looked at Walmart, we just come away saying too, too expensive, not enough actual growth. All right. We've been noting all morning uh, futures in the green, tech's performance. What do you make of that? We've had so many disruptions. I know you think things are going to stay range bound, but obviously tech just continues to outperform. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's played out. You know, it's a lot of those stocks, Apple, Amazon, Google, Meta, they're just up. NVIDIA, they're up like 30, 60, 80 percent this year. And there was an interesting thing I heard on um, on CNBC yesterday, which was those stocks on average are up five percent on the year where on average or rather, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Those stocks are responsible for a five percent gain in the S&P 500, where the S&P 500 was only up yesterday, three and a half percent, which would imply that they've more than more than carried the weight. And I look at them and I see valuations that are not that cheap. And I see growth prospects that are not that compelling. So what I think happened which they were the beneficiaries of the dividend stocks um, punishment or anything with leverage or anything small cap, where as soon as things got scary about a month ago, people ran for what had, what had worked for them in the past without really saying, okay, Apple, you're trading at 25 times earnings, but you're only going to produce 6% earnings growth. That doesn't make sense. So I've never thought that those stocks should implode, but I've okay. always thought that they should plateau. Their valuations are stretched relative to, to their growth prospects.
All right, certainly something to watch. Jenny Harrington of Gilman Hill, thank you so much for being here. And we also want to give you a little promo uh, for the audience. Be sure to sign up for the upcoming CNBC Pro Talks event featuring Jenny, along with SoFi's Liz Young and Requisite Capital's Bryn Talkington. That is tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Just go to CNBC.com slash Pro Talks for much more information, and you can sign up there as well. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box, coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.